you know, we're committed to helping build generational wealth. And we know one way to do that is through home ownership. Because like I mentioned earlier, when we looked at our Home Buy Insights report, people, this is real feedback from people. And they're like, I'm going to be the first one in my family out of seven generations, perhaps, perhaps is going to own a home. I've seen it. I've been in situations where I saw people get keys and they are the first and their grandparents are crying and everything. Hey, folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. And today we kick off part one of a three-part series focused on helping mortgage originators and mortgage banks better serve historically underserved communities and expanding access to homeownership. We're going to cover both the impact to these potential homeowners and homebuyers and the economic benefits for our broader economy and the mortgage lending market. Today, we kick off with AJ Barkley, the head of neighborhood and community lending at Bank of America. We talk about the state of housing affordability and AJ's path to helping mortgage banks expand access to credit to underserved communities. I really hope you enjoy this dynamic conversation with AJ Barkley and stay tuned for the upcoming episodes. They will be powerful and impactful. Enjoy. We are here in Scottsdale, Arizona at Housing Wire Annual. I'm with AJ Barkley, Head of Neighborhood and Community Lending at Bank of America. AJ, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. What a great conference, by the way. I this appreciate is fabulous. It. The only thing I regret is the fact that I didn't know you were also based in DFW. And like you and I could have known each other all along in our home market of Dallas, but it takes us coming to Arizona to get some FaceTime. I know. Well, good news is now I know I can come visit you often and you can come ask me for anything. I, I know. Hey, there, so folks, if you like this episode, uh, we're going to do a follow-up. We're Absolutely. Gonna bring, we're going to bring AJ back. So today I'm really excited uh, to, to bring this like this extra content that we're, we're recording at Housing Wire Annual. And we're going to talk about the state of housing affordability, which in a market that's had rapid home price appreciation, extremely rapid increases in interest rates, still powerful demographics of um, first time home buyers and household formation and all of the things that should be powering a, a, a healthy household formation and first time home buyer market. But we have some we have some headwinds. So I think we're going to talk about those today. We do. I mean, I think it's pretty interesting, but I, I would tell you, uh, first-time home buyers are people who've been wanting to get a home for many years and been planning on it. They're they're not they're curious about what this all means in terms of the mortgage rates and everything. But I think they're still open uh, to thinking about solutions that may be helpful for them. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to to learn more about your role at Bank of America, AJ, and and also the background that brings you into this community lending and, and neighborhood focus. So, can you can you start us off with your career in the in the financial services industry? Like, how did you? What brought you to this? What brought you to Bank of America? What brought you to this focus you have on community lending? Well, thank you for asking. So, I won't age myself too much, but um, I've done over 30 years, 35 years in financial services. Um, I started at uh, Citibank for about 10 years, and I was really in the servicing, client-facing roles, managing that, that people. That we have in common. Yes, yes, we talked about, you yeah. know, uh, which is one of the hardest jobs, I think, in, in, in many industries is client-facing roles where you care so much about the people you're 
um, engaging with daily. So I was at Citibank for 10 years and then moved over to Bank of America. I'll be celebrating my 27th anniversary here in November. And um, I've done a lot of different jobs in the time frame I've been here. A lot of them client-facing, uh, a lot of them strategy, tactics. And, you know, one of the things that I learned in my 20, almost 27 years at Bank of America that it's really important that you learn the bank from the client's perspective. You understand what's important to the communities that we serve and you engage in a way that is intentional so that the solutions that you may bring to bear are important to the community. And which is why I love the job I've been in for almost five years as the head of it's, it's evolved, but today it's the uh, head of neighborhood and community lending. And what I get to do is, um, design strategies and tactics to help us help people realize the power of home ownership, sustained home ownership, and also, you know, expand it a little bit to include small business, which would be around, you know, how do I as a new entrepreneur start a business? And I have a team, they're all over the country. I have a team that helps with strategies and tactics. I have a team that literally faces off with clients, their community lending officers, and also have teams that face off with realtors so we can make sure everyone understands the solutions that we have. So I've had a lot of jobs, probably about ooh, 11 to 15 in that time frame. Well, actually, I mean, with, with being at Bank of America 27 years, it hasn't, has it always, was it Bank of America on your business card all along? Or are you like Nations Bank? Oh, I'm Nations Bank. Okay, so right. I'm Nations Bank. And then I was there for Barnett Bank, Fleet Bank, Boatman's Bank. I remember Barnett. And then the merger of Bank of America. I grew up in Florida. I remember Barnett oh, you remember being, that? Uh, being everywhere. Yeah. And so, you know, we've watched the growth and the development. And you know what's interesting about that? It's just the diversity of thought an approach that has happened through all of the mergers and acquisitions and um, people have, have the history. They remember when, um, but I've done a lot of, of, of different roles. I think one of the ones you and I talked about earlier is I used to manage financial centers. I had about 145 in Texas and uh, North Texas and probably one of the most fulfilling jobs I've had other than the one I'm doing today where I got a chance to coach and develop people and help them be just phenomenal in helping with financial wellness of our clients. Yeah. Managing retail depository branches is a, uh, is a very fulfilling, but very challenging job. I told you that I managed a branch like during the GFC and, uh, that was a, that was a, a trial by fire experience, uh, helping guide, um, both like early career and really experienced branch employees from, from tellers to, to business bankers through a, a a period of turmoil for, for me, that was actually my introduction to the importance of industry media and financial media. Cause as an, the bigger organization, the banks, you know, there's, it's hard to disseminate real time information to each of your branches and each of your leaders every morning before the doors open. So I, I was like, found this reliance in 2008 and 2009 of like, all right, I got to like get ahead of the news and be prepared to fill my team in on what's happening in the markets. Cause I mean, you remember that time period every, every night, every uh, morning we woke up to a different situation and, um, I mean, for both of our organizations, uh, uh, different ownership in some scenarios. <laughs> yeah, it is very interesting. I think we, um, it is important, your point around making sure your your teams, your colleagues have the right mm-hmm. information and aren't, don't have information that could be misleading. Because, you know, we talked about this earlier, people trust 
those that they engage with in our financial centers, whether that's our CSRs or tellers yep. or the bankers or the relation, whatever the role may be, no matter what financial institution it is, and they go see them and they trust them. And so getting information during some turmoil over the last you know, 20 years or so, really important. Otherwise, people make up stuff, which is, you know, you have to be careful with social media now and, and make sure, you know, people are fact based and the information that they're sharing, because this really is about people's financial priorities. Yep. You can't take that lightly, but it was great. I mean, I was in Detroit during that time and uh, it was a great, it was a great experience and um, being able to work with colleagues and, you know, help people when they're relatively junior in their careers. I think that's one of the things I was, um, I really enjoy about the bank. I kind of think about my vulnerable moments and I think about the people that helped me through that. And so I really am committed to doing that with, uh, with my colleagues today. So in your experience at Bank of America, like, and I zoom out to like the broader mortgage and housing industry, we've seen this, this movement between depositories and um, independent mortgage banks and like shifts in, in market share, um, like mo- moving pre-financial crisis and during the financial crisis. And like, it's, so I'm curious from your perspective, like how would you describe the Bank of America mortgage lending business today and like the, the, the types of clients you serve? And if they're all um, depository clients, and I'm just curious to hear the bit about the business from your point of view. Yeah, I mean, I would think I, I would say that we we are very passionate about market share, no matter what market that is, and whatever that potential competitor could be. It could be a mortgage only business. It could be another financial institution. What we do know is we have, oh gosh, I'm going to date myself here. I'm going to say 30 million clients. Let's just use that number for round numbers for discussion. So if we have 30 million clients that currently bank with us, they could have whatever relationship with us. It's really important to us. And we don't get too you know, concerned about other institutions and whether they be full uh, institutions like they have depository relationship mm-hmm. or lending or just a lending business. We want to make sure that our clients, no matter where they are in their life plan, you know, people have different needs at different times in their life cycle. We're really focused and have been for several years on meeting our clients where they are. So that doesn't mean we don't look for new clients. It doesn't mean that we don't want to bring new clients on board, whether whether they're, you know, a client that's just starting out or someone's a little bit more established or someone that's really grown where they need, you know, maybe some um, um, other financial advice, et cetera, you know, small business. But it's never really been a challenge for us other than growing people's relationships with us based on their personal needs at their time with trusted advisors. So, and when I mean trusted advisors, I'm not talking about Merrill Lynch. I'm talking about trusted yeah. advisors in a broader, mm-hmm. a broader sense. You know, we have eight lines of businesses. And the way we think about the bank is how do we serve a market through those eight lines? Of bu- Dallas has all eight lines of business, for yeah. instance, right? And so we can take care of whatever your needs are. I'm not so sure others can. Um, our lending business is a core part of our business. Um, some people have kind of stepped away from that. Uh, as a core business, but it is a core business of ours. So tell me, so what is the, like the distribution strategy today? Like how much mortgage volume is originated like through the financial center? Are there, are there LOs sitting in the center? Or is that like personal bankers who like initiate like the mortgage conversations? Like, like how do you help your bank clients discover the mortgage product? And how does that like, how does that process look? It's a great question. So 
we have, gosh, I'm going to say maybe 1,300 um, lending specialists that are physically sitting in our financial centers. Okay, so lending specialists. Lending specialists. Okay. Yeah, lending specialists. And then we have, you know, another, you know, let's just say another 800 or so that are not necessarily sitting in a financial center, but they can support clients wherever they are. So, uh, and the beauty of that is no matter what entry point, and then you can also dial in. You uh-huh. call us. We have another, I don't remember the number, but it's a large number. And then we also have our digital mortgage experience where even from the convenience of your own home, you can start to be, you know, the lending yeah. process. So we feel like we have a strong lending presence, whether you're in our wealth business, whether you're starting out in terms of the lending process. Um, and it's consistent. That's the other point I would say. So, you know, people go three different ways. They may yep. go online one day and the next day they may call in or they may go in the center and we just want to meet our clients where they are in terms of the channels. Do you see any like differences in um, first time home buyers or repeat buyers or different demographics that are more drawn to initiating their uh, mortgage application in the financial center versus the digital mortgage experience? Like how, how do you anticipate and like build toward which channel is going to be most important for certain segments of your like banking client list? That's a great question. I think there's been um, this thought that first time home buyers have to sit down physically in front of a lending specialist to have this conversation because lending can be somewhat overwhelming. And we're not necessarily seeing that. We're seeing people who already do a lot of their businesses digitally. If you think about what we've gone through with the pandemic in the last several years, people have kind of thought of other ways to engage in their financial services. And we see a little bit of both. Um, we see first some homebuyers go through that process and then they still seek support. Yeah. So when you go through our digital mortgage experience, which is you know online, you can at any point in time talk to a lending specialist. Now, I do think there are people who need more help. It's not just about the mortgage. It's about their overall financial wellness. They prefer to physically come in a financial center or they prefer to physically speak to someone because they don't know what they don't know. And we want them to do that, by the way. We're not deterring people from going to whatever channel that makes you feel most comfortable. Yeah, because we want to make sure we help you. It's yeah. not a one channel fits all. Like, I mean, exactly. That doesn't work in anybody's business model. And it's interesting to hear you say that the first time home buyers are getting more comfortable with the digital experience because the narrative in mortgage, like, if we go back pre pandemic, was that like everyone's going to be digital except those millennials who need their handheld through the process, despite the fact that they're addicted to their iPhones. And like, I think there was a period where everybody thought the first time home buyers were going to be the biggest adopters of the the digital point of sale. And if we rewind a couple of years, like at least the mortgage industry wanted to, to use the narrative that that wasn't true. They actually do want to go into a retail location and sit down and talk to somebody, but you're kind of sharing that that's flipping a little bit. It is. And I think it's also because we have so many tools and resources, the way we speak necessarily as specialists and they can do these things in the convenience of their home. We have like first time home buyer edu series where you can, hear people that have really gone through the home buying process. They're using kitchen English yeah. and they're talking about the things that kitchen they do. English. Kitchen English. That was like, the first time heard. So yeah. it's, what is kitchen English? It's sort of like you're sitting at the dinner table <laughs> with your family and you sp- nobody knows what your job so you, is. You, nobody knows what your title is. You're they're not like, talking about amortization. No, and no, you're not. Yeah, you're just yeah. like, I need a home. I yeah. want to get a home. What, is, what does that look like? And, um, and so our video really is, and it's actually real home buyers. And it does, again, get your convenience of your home. Yeah. You can go through that. Plus we have other types of tools 
tools and resources. We have better money habits. And we also have like Bank of America Real Estate Center where people can go and again, the convenience of their own home, start to look at properties. I also think the reason the you know self-service tools where people can do it in the convenience of their own home works is I think some people are sh- uh, shy to share how much they do or don't know about the home buying process. And so I think that they like to do some homework themselves. Uh, we also have a number of people that work with our HUD, with HUD approved home buyer education counseling agencies. And so they're also there. So the people are doing some, a lot of these things online. I'm not suggesting that people don't go into financial centers and don't want to meet with lending specialists face to face. But I think a lot of people are more comfortable, you know, again, I'll call it self-serving where when they want at three in the morning, if they want to start thinking about home buying, home ownership. So AJ, we opened the conversation talking about some of the the market dynamics that are making housing challenging right now. Affordability, home price appreciation, interest rates. How is home price appreciation impacting the borrowers that, that you work with and advocate for? Well, um, we all know that the housing market surged during the pandemic, right? And then the rates were lower. So we did see a number of, um, actually some more millennials starting to get into the housing market that had been waiting and waiting after what happened in 2008 through 2012, but they kind of reemerged and was in the highest in the market. Well, at the same time that the, um, prices of the the interest rates went down sellers took advantage of that and raised the pricing of housing so and another thing that happened during this time that's affecting let's say people that are first-time home buyers is um, we saw a lot of investment property being built yep. purchased and so where in fact there may have been inventory in communities that would be affordable let's just call it a conforming product mm-hmm. um, they were no longer available so um, it, what what's um, not good about that is then there's more properties out there, but those properties probably need rehab and it's probably needs, needs some work to be done for, um, in those cases and, or people may need to move in places they weren't necessarily planning on moving. So, you know, in kind of big mega metropolitan areas, the housing prices went up. So you may have to make a decision if you really want to yep. purchase a home now is to purchase in a community in a city that isn't growing as fast or bringing you further away from your current place of employment or further away from your, your family who's embedded in a community or some other a church or community aspect that you want to be near. That's um, it seems like that's, I think of the, you know, our home market in Dallas, when you, you want to screen for prices, homes that are in a certain price point, which would traditionally be considered like the, the starter home for the first time home buyer. Few and far between. You're you're going out 40 miles to uh to, to really like start to access quality housing that doesn't need heavy rehab. Um, I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that um uh, we did see when we did the Homebuyer Insights report coming out of the pandemic, people were intentionally at that time moving to suburbs and moving out of the city and moving to other places because they needed more space. They wanted a backyard. They wanted to paint a wall purple. They wanted to have their kids at home because we didn't know how long they were going to be home. So some of that was intentional in the beginning, but once um, the pandemic became more controlled, you're right, people had to make some decisions on where they literally live. And so one of the things that you know, we know that um, inflation tends to disproportionately impact um, low and moderate income individuals. Rent prices are up and down. So that it really is a dynamic right now that is probably most impacting, you know, that group uh, of individuals and families. Uh, one of the things we launched in 2019 
uh, before the pandemic happened is uh, our community home ownership commitment because we knew housing prices were high, rates were low, but people who were critical. only knew how high they were. Right, yeah. I mean, look, we all know when rates were much higher than what it is. It's almost like I don't want to talk about how I walked in the snow with no shoes kind of story, but the the rates are not as high as even they've been, you know, in a a stable market. But one of the things we found is for this um, group of uh, individuals and families, like they're credit worthy, they're responsible, but for a lot of first-time homebuyers, they just don't have cash reserves, and so when we launched our community home ownership commitment, which was a low down payment mortgage up to $17,500 combined between closing costs and down payment assistance, we made a commitment. I won't take you through the history, but our last number was $15 billion in commitment through 2025. We've already done $9.7 billion, and that's Excellent. at the enterprise level and over 300 and let's say $60 million in um, non-repayable grants. And so first time home buyers, despite what the market is like, and by the way, with our program, you can actually layer other down payment grants on it, and you can buy your rate down. So now it's really like, here's a program. It's there. It's available in about 70 markets. It's in Dallas. It's in a lot of the markets. Um, the question is, where is the housing? But if you could buy your rate down and you can stabilize your rent, because what you know this, most of the time the rent is less is more expensive, excuse me, than the mortgage payment, at least yeah, with I mean, the 30 days. And like, if you look yeah. at certain markets, like, I mean, this is like, like Southwest Florida, I mean, yeah. unfortunately kind of ravaged right now after a hurricane, but like that Fort Myers market was insane in terms of, of rent growth, um, which put just more pressure on the, the purchase market. So you see home price appreciation and rent growth skyrocket, but we have seen, I think it's three or four months of relatively steady uh decreases in in rent prices which um you know can be looked at through different different angles and i i'm, I'm kind of curious how that plays out as people get their you know their 12 month renewals coming up and uh if they choose to extend as they have a little more rent stability or if the pump they're still like keep their sights set on home ownership i think it's both mm-hmm. uh, you know i also think that there's a trust factor here and now people are like well what does this mean if the rates go you know if they keep going up Yep. You know, if I don't do it now, I may never be able to do it. And so I think people are making personal decisions and are sitting with their financial, whoever they advises them financially, whatever financial institution that is, and are having these conversations. But I also think people who are first generation homeowners, no one in their family's ever had a home. Those are just inconveniences right now. They are just anxious to find property and a home and be able to have the access to reserves, which are, you know, several financial institutions are doing this. So it's not, you know, the industry knows that we have to help people because they don't necessarily have gifts. They don't necessarily have the funds to get in. I think people are still going to do it. And they're, you know, they're just going to find the property that makes sense. That's what we're seeing. Um, if I think about my community lending officers, they spend a lot of time helping people longer term planning around home ownership. It may take a little longer. You may have to do some things around um, adjusting your credit, your savings, et cetera. Because what we want to make sure of is people are anxious to get in homes. They can stay in their home. We got to make sure, you know, if the water heater breaks or the car goes, you know, do they have enough stabilized savings themselves? Um, to be able to stay in the home. So there's a lot of dynamics here. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, there are first-time homebuyers, if you said that they had to close on a holiday, they would close on a holiday yeah. because they just really, really want to live the American dream, which is owning a home. Absolutely. Or one of them is owning a home.
And now we're going to take a a really quick break for this week's edition of the Mortgage Minute brought to you by Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions. Closing loans for real estate investors doesn't have to be a complicated process full of providing employment information, tax returns, W-2s, and other complicated documentation. This is Stephen Winokur, Chief Marketing Officer at Angel Oak, back with another non-QM Minute. Look at our Investor Cash Flow or DSCR solution that qualifies your real estate investor based on the cash flow generated by the investment property. No income or tax returns are required. We do have a DSCR requirement of one, which means the expected rent must be equal to or greater than the mortgage PITIA. We also offer interest only and we accept non-warrantable condos. And don't forget about our delayed financing options. Perfect for submitting cash offers and then recouping a large percentage of that after closing. Investor cash flow is one of our most popular loan options for real estate investors because it works. It's that simple and that easy. And that's today's non-QM minute. So kind of, so for, for my understanding, can we go back to like the structure of these low down payment programs and not like, are, is it like, I know there's, there's grants you're getting through communities. There's, um, is there partnerships with MI companies that like enable, like, tell me how those like, like zero or extremely low down payment programs work in terms of how the different pieces come together and MI and grants and bank of America commitment, like whatever it is. Yeah. So um, it, it, the way it works is, um, we have our own, we have our, um, low down payment mortgages and they're conforming products. And so you would, and as a person be able to take advantage of 3% down. And then we provide the $7,500 in closing costs and, the, and it's for non-recurring expenses. So the client can take the full, fully, you know, fully for apply to the closing costs and, or they could use part of that to buy down a rate. So they have okay. some power over that. And then we have 3% up to $10,000 for down payment. Okay. You can layer municipality um, down payment grants. You can layer additional down payment grants that are available in the market with that program. So if it's 17.5, there's no, um, for our program, you don't have to live in the house for three years. There's no requirements of that. It has to be a primary residence. So we're not trying to encourage investment properties through our program. And um, depending on what product you use, one may have an MI, one may not have an MI, mortgage insurance, Mm -hmm. but it really is about layering. The only other thing I would say, Clayton, that's extremely important that I think we need to continue to do a better job of is making sure people understand the programs, what they are, and, and, and work with what we call trusted advisors in the community that um, can make sure people, you know, we, I, I talk about this all the time, and um, I have to have to leverage our realtor partners, builder partners, partners such as yourselves and others that are trusted advisors in terms of telling the story with facts to help us because it's here. That's the thing that worries me is there's programs across the country that people just don't know about or or leveraging. No, it's not a, I mean, when you talk about like how like grants and down payment credits and MI all work together to enable this accessible product, it's not simple. It's not simple to me. And so I can only under, I can only imagine to the first time home buyer that how these, all these moving pieces kind of come together at a time where all they're thinking about is getting into this new three bedroom, two bath house where they're going to raise their kids and be part of the community. So talk about how your community lending officers or like the communication of real estate agents. Like I'm, I'm just curious about how you like 
like tactically, like get this information out there. So agents can be a, an extension of these lending programs. That's a great question. We actually have several strategic partnerships and relationships with some of the affinity realtor organizations, the national association of Hispanic real estate professionals, um, the um, ARIA, you know, NAREB, others. And so we partner with them. That's just a strategic relationship locally and nationally. We also, I have a team, a realtor builder team that works with new builders, works with realtors across the country. And we make sure they understand the products and services that we have. As a matter of fact, we meet with them frequently. So the team is, you know, I'll call it stop, drop, and roll. Like we got to make sure, especially in markets that we have these programs in, that we are not seeing the utilization that we expect. And there may be homeowner, you know, um, inventory there. We just constantly uh, make ourselves available. We do home buyer workshops. We meet with realtors, brokers, like their entire office and say, Hey, let us demystify any questions you may have around the products. We we actually talk about the layering of programs. Um, things that we work with realtors on is this not this notion that if someone uses a down payment program it's going to elongate the lending process and our community home ownership commitment doesn't do that was this were these types of programs more challenging over the last two years when the market was moving with such competitive velocity actually it wasn't the community home ownership commitment when we originally launched this at five billion dollars yeah, in yeah, 2025 shared the metric we, the we blew that up i mean that went like that lasted all of like less than a year we were like okay People have heard this. This is a, a solution set that meets the needs of the clients. And that's why we tripled our, our commitment to $15 billion. So it's almost like, the was it the field of dreams? You build yeah. it, they will come. They have come. But I think it's now, you know, in the current marketplace without inventory, you know, yeah. so like you have a solution, but now you have to have inventory. And so we actually are working with developers and builders as well. Um, to see if there's other solutions that others have to your point around, are we partnering with others? Uh, we're doing some work with parity homes okay. um, and some other places because they are building a communities. We want to be the person there to support them. So we're anxiously looking for partners. Um, if there, in fact, there's some builders out there that are doing things that are affordable in nature which, which and is, not which investment is, property, which is rare right now. And right. Like if you'd spend any time with agents and loan officers, they're going to complain about the availability of inventory and the industry's wanted to look to home builders to save us from this inventory crisis. But like, I, I probably, think it's going to take more. I mean, yeah. you can't have, you know, people coming in buying six or seven blocks of property for investment only where they buy for investment property and then rent it out because that inventory is not available. And I'm not sure what the rental prices look like. It's worse in certain markets than others. I mean, one of the things I don't know if I mentioned this already is we're trying to figure out how we can be more effective with community revitalization. Okay. How do we go in with communities and partner with others? We're kind of early in that process. Um, to try to figure out how we, you know, can partner and be, you know, part of the, and I'm talking about home ownership. We already do a lot of work around community development for affordable rental housing, um, but we need to continue to find ways through um, ownership as well. So, and like, if you listen to builder earnings calls, you, you start to like pick up on this theme that like building entry level housing, affordable housing is not a easy business model right now. And that's why like the, the build to rent focus has um, become a, a major focus. And uh, so with Bank of America being in eight 
business lines, is there an opportunity or is, is, is it an action of like being able to work with developers at like the commercial lending perspective, which actually like aids in like the future community development effort? Like how how do the different, do the business lines work together and and that type of focus? Our business lines do work together. Um, and we, you know, think about markets holistically because what you have eight lines of business in the market. What do, what do we need to do to serve the community that we have? I think there's work that we're continuing to do. You asked about commercial. Uh-huh. Um, most of our commercial um, is business commercial. Um, we do com- community development housing, which is commercial in nature as well. You know, we're starting to explore their other options um, for us to continue to provide more affordable housing in general. Yep. But our, our business model isn't necessarily to build housing and, and finance housing for home ownership. I understand. So we, we, we're trying to figure out what are the other solutions, like I said, partnering with others. But I do think um, when we think about entry points of clients coming into markets where we have eight lines of businesses, you know, a lot of them are first time home buyers, but they're also self-employed. And, you know, and so we also uh, in Dallas have a program where we're assisting with grants because access to capital is important. So I think the way we're thinking about our clients, we're thinking about all their needs and see if there's solutions that we may have. The other thing we're learning, Clayton, is we may not have all the solutions. And so what's been extremely exciting is we do what we call community development roundtables. And we get direct feedback from the clients in the market because it's not a one size fits all. I mean, you can yep. solve at the top of the house like a lot of people do. But we also know that locally there are probably specific dynamics in that market. And so we're not, you know, we're still in a, a work in progress. I don't want people to think we've solved world hunger. Um, we still have a lot more work to do, but it really is working with the trusted advisors in the community, hearing from community leaders, hearing from people in the community to say, this is what we need. And then we go back and figure out if this is something that we can actually do. I don't think anybody at the event this week or anybody in the industry is pretending they, they have it all figured out right now. This, uh, you know, the, the rapid change has created a, a market dynamic where, which is, which is positive in a lot of ways we get to build together and like figure out the, the future of, of the housing industry. And, um, the affordable housing space is such an important topic for the the long-term health and viability of the housing industry because uh, like it or not, the first time home buyers are necessary to be the second time home buyers. <laughs> and uh, we, we need to create an opportunity for people to enter the housing market as owners because we're all, I think most of us here, all of us here are, are building businesses, um, uh, whether you're an originator or an owner that has decades of, or decades or centuries of sustainable operations. And like, we need these first time home buyers to, to get into the housing ownership ecosystem. We do. I mean, also, you know, we're committed to helping build generational wealth and we know one way to do that is through home ownership. Cause like I mentioned earlier, when we looked at our home buy insights report, people, this is real feedback from people and they're like, I'm going to be the first one in my family out of seven generations, perhaps, perhaps it's going to own a home. I've seen it. I've been in situations where I saw people get keys and they are the first and their grandparents are crying and everything because owning a home is not the only way to build generational wealth, but in many cases it helps you to have the equity to, you know, we think about student debt and people having a, you know, there's a lot of equity. I was reading a a study somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but there's people that are sitting on equity in their homes as well. And they don't even know how to maybe even leverage that equity. So you have kind of first time home buyers, you have people that have been in their homes, and they may be struggling somehow, but they need some assistance on what do you really do? 
you know, if you literally have equity in your home and you have a situation. So you got to be careful in terms of balancing those things. But what's most important is that we meet people where they are. Like you heard me say, kitchen English yep. to demystify this process, because all they want to do is get in a home. The mortgage is just a problem. It's just like getting in the way. Yep. Like literally, that's yeah, no, yeah, they we, just want to. I want a home. Help me get in the home. We've all heard the speaker say, nobody wants a mortgage. Yeah. They want a house. Like, like, <laughs> right. They just want a house. And, yeah. you know, I remember when I, so, you know, the job that I do today, when I first took the job five years, you know, I, didn't, I never opened a loan myself. Yeah. I got a chance to manage a team that did. And whether or not I was working in financial centers, whether I was working on strategy, whatever it is, the situation was pretty much the same. People wanted to be able to have someone explain to them in simplistic ways the facts, tell them that you don't have to have 20% down like your aunt told you from 15 years yeah. ago for someone that's not been in the housing market for 30 years, scaring, you know, doing a scared straight and scaring everybody out of home ownership. And yep. so what I did learn, no matter what job I had, whether in the client facing is trusted resources and being able to demystify whatever the process is, is extremely important. Yeah. I mean, God, can you imagine if this market's still operating with 20% down payments and right. actually I don't know, maybe house prices, house home price appreciation <laughs> might be a little slower, but uh, yeah, we, we would not be a functional market at this current price level if everybody needed 20% down. I, I thought the the point you made on building generational wealth is really interesting. And it kind of like triggered something for me that like the only way to build like whether it's generational wealth or just like a comfortable level of um, net worth, you have to own something. And like, whether it's a business or, or public equities, you have to own something. And the house is one of the few things that you can own and functionally use. And it's, it's probably the most accessible like thing that like someone can own because there's, yeah, you just have to own something to build, to build net worth. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I, when we have this discussion, people are like, well, what about other ways? Well, there's multiple ways, but you're right, being able to live in home. And the other thing that we found out, because it's tangible, again, from my Home Buyer Insights report, and this came after the pandemic, it wasn't just I'm building generational wealth and I'm in a home. People said that their family dynamics changed significantly. Yeah. Mental health, being able to have um, fellowship with your family, being able to do more things with your family, having a central place, it actually helped them save money because they were doing things differently. And, I, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I think a lot of people have uh, evaluated a lot of their priorities, you know, what they were doing and not doing. But I was shocked to see that it was, it helped me my, from a health perspective to even own a home. So it wasn't just generational wealth. Maybe they weren't eating out as much. You I'm not sure. You're mowing that yeah, lawn. mowing the lawn, <laughs> painting, you're, you know, doing barbecues in the backyard or whatever that might be. Um, but it, 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 it it's helping to solve a lot of things. And then um, you you mentioned your first home. You know, if you have your first home and you, and you want to expand and you want to buy your second home, that becomes easier, right? And so, you know, maybe you'll, maybe your first home's a duplex. So you live in one side of the house and you rent the other side of the house. So there's multiple ways to do that, but people don't know unless they ask. And so I would just encourage people as they're listening to the podcast and you're talking to family and friends, get them to a specialist of some sort, yep. make sure they are talking to someone that is a specialist or can give you sound advice. You know, I love my family. I really do. But 
my family doesn't they don't necessarily know what I know or know what others because I still go to specialists for different things. You know, I'm in banking. I still pick up the phone and call a specialist yep. when I need something. It's situational and personal too. Like right. we, uh, there was a group of six of us in a Uber heading to dinner last night and gentleman asked, like, oh, what are you what are you doing in Scottsdale? I said, Oh, it's a, it's a, we're a group of housing and real estate people and he instantly asked, uh, so is now a good time to buy a home? <laughs> and like, yeah, you know, you give I, I give kind of my like canned answer, like, well, uh, are you financial? Are you financially prepared, and do you need a place to live? And like that's the question you have, the questions you have to answer if you really are ready to buy a home. And we, uh, the few other folks in the car, kind of chimed in and in, in their perspectives. But but ultimately, like you cannot give that advice. You cannot answer that question of now is a good time to buy a home unless you understand the the person and like what they need from a, a family and shelter perspective, what job stability looks like, what earnings growth and potential and stability looks like, what savings looks like, and also their personality. And that's something that like, it's, you know, there's some people not because they're not financially prepared, but like maybe because they hate, DIY and they couldn't like plunge a toilet if their life depended on it. Like maybe renting is okay for you for a little bit longer. (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I I do think that's why I think you have to go talk to someone because you can't, you know, six people probably had different points of view. Right. And then um, it is about sustained home ownership. But if like I talked to someone to say, well, what are you paying in rent? Yep. And there is affordable housing. Yeah, and the, yeah, that's a great question. Right. What's your alternative? What's to your alternative yeah. to owner? You know, um, I I was shocked that my daughter, when my daughter graduated from high school, three or four of her friends, friends of mine, they sold their homes and moved into apartments, and then they bought vacation homes. That's so the theme that I've heard was pop different. Out of like like expensive markets like San Francisco, where people buy a, a second home or an investment property before the primary because buying on the peninsula is expensive. <laughs> yeah. I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting. I was like, so, but you know, they were empty nesters probably. That's probably the difference. Right. Yeah. So it depends on where you are in the life cycle of what, what you need in terms of home ownership. And then the other thing we take, we, we, you know, help people that it's their first time home. It may not be a five bedroom, three bath pool in the backyard, you know, yep. gazebo type of home for your first home. And again, gazebo depending on your market, nice. I think gazebo is pretty good, especially in Texas. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, what is the priority and you want to make sure that you you know, can afford your mortgage, you have the ability if an emergency would happen. You know, that's the beauty of the programs we have. It's not that we don't want people to have money for down payment and closing costs. Mm-hmm. What we would say to people is the money you are already saving for down payment and closing costs should now become emergency funds. And so think about how you could be responsible around those dollars. So when the car breaks down, et cetera, that yeah. you're not at this moment trying to figure out how to pay your bills. And so it is about financial counseling, financial advice to help people no matter where they are. I mean, I think the last thing I would say is a lot of times we make assumptions about people just externally looking at someone and saying, oh, they know about home ownership or, you know, they're experts in this, experts in that. And then you, they actually, in many cases, need the same counseling and support um, that a first-time home buyer needs. Yeah. I can see uh, our Melissa, our, our managing editor of our content solutions team, is is nodding at the saving for some of those um, unexpected first time homeowner expenses. Like, yeah, that's a that's good advice. You don't know, right? <laughs> I mean, you don't know when the car go breaks, and you just think about that. If your car breaks, you have to work. If you don't work, you don't get paid. 
Um, if you don't have daycare because the daycare person, you don't have alternative daycare. Like there's so many things. That's why your point around it is individually based. That's the important use of using um, home buyer education, education and counseling. And then in your financial institution, whatever that may be, that you really understand financial wellness. Like it is okay to sit down and say, look, I need to have three months of my salary somewhere being saved. How do I get there? And it starts small. I mean, sometimes, you know, it's not like people have a lot of money sitting around, right? And so it's important that people help you get there um, and, and that you're not embarrassed to be able to sit down and have that conversation. Yeah. So AJ, as the head of neighborhood and community lending, like you are a part of one of the largest and most resourced financial institutions in the country. You have a, an unique responsibility and opportunity to help improve access to home ownership. It's 4,500 lenders in the U S not everybody has the, the resources of a, um, a neighborhood and community lending group to, to focus on this really important priority. So what advice would you give for the yellows or regional leaders that are, that are part of mid market INBs who, who want to help improve access to home ownership, but don't have the luxury of, of AJ Barkley out there making it happen for their organization. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that we're trying to get better at, and I would recommend is really partner with community groups, community advocate groups and others that have are considered trusted advisors in the, com- in the communities we serve, we all serve yep. and find out from them what is really needed. And sometimes it's not even money. I mean, just to be clear, sometimes it's like, can you just come talk to people to help demystify the process, do some home buyer workshops. I always tell people that, you know, um, there's ways that I call it sweat equity, right? Where you just kind of get in there you know, work with organizations, again, trusted organizations yep. that you can help them. Um, now, you're right, everyone's not going to be able to do $15 billion of lending, right, in, in a short period of time and not have any, you know, the $360 million, I think I said, in down payment assistance. Everyone may not be able to do that. But the other thing I would say to them is, and I'm learning this more, where there are down payment programs and things that are local, city, state, learn those and be well-versed because they're not the same yep. state over state. And and so you need to make sure you have a resource or a specialist that can actually tell you when those things change, make sure you're in front of those um, situations. So that's what I would say. I mean, I get it. They don't, they're not Bank of America, and I understand that. But it is absolutely, Clayton, going to take all of us to really combat the current challenges with affordable housing um, and putting people and individuals and families in homes. It's going to take all of us. So I, oh. I, I don't even see these as competition or anything like that. I see this all of us trying to solve a pretty big problem in our country. And I think I think the the broader mortgage industry and real estate industry is is figuring out is this is a um, this is a business priority. And you you start to look at where the first time home buyer is coming from and and seeing the pri- the the prioritization of the American dream by new immigrant families or families who haven't owned, who don't have somebody, their, their parent or grandparent or great grandparent who's, who's owned a home. They're preparing to, to grow their businesses and help more consumers and be important parts of their community. Um, in the next leg of, of this housing cycle have to understand how to help first time home buyers access the market. And uh, Absolutely. It's, it's just good business and it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. And I think people should not be de- um, deterred right now. Yep. 
I think you made a comment that you, I think you said in the car, the Uber, the person said is now is a good time. And you're like, well, are you financially stable? <laughs> you know, there's probably three or four questions that you ask the person to at least get started with the conversation. And I've heard, I've talked about it on this podcast before, where you hear like some like great one-liners from, from Ella's and real estate agents of like marry the house, state the rate. Like, I mean, <laughs> if you find the home that's right for you and your family right now, um, yeah, maybe rates go up a little bit further. Maybe they come down a little bit. And if they come down, there's an opportunity to refi and, and lower your, your cost of ownership. But yeah, I agree. I also think, um, you know, the other point for people that don't necessarily, this is not what they do every day is the question should be, what can you afford monthly? Yep. What what can you afford comfortably where you can pay your, you have the ability to repay, you have the ability to maintain the house, you have the ability when the car breaks, and that may be the initial question versus, uh, I mean, rate is important, right? And full disclaimer around rate, what the people are paying, all of that is absolutely important. But in many cases, uh, mortgage is less than what they're paying in rent, and they they're not necessarily getting the benefit of all the things we've yep. discussed. And it, and, you, and you lock in the the cost of home ownership, unless you live in Texas and you see, see, keep seeing property taxes shoot. I know, <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> AJ, thank you so much for for joining us at Housing Wire Annual and sharing more about the work that you do at Bank of America. Thank you. It was great. I'll be back. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.